There we go. Hey, there we go. Came in request of the dying thief. Before considering Christ's reply, let's first ponder what precipitated his reply. Christ's crucifixion between two thieves fulfilled his father's plan. Okay? I really want to press this back into our hearts this morning because remembering this can be vitally helpful to us in our day and time when, according to the news cycle, we live in unprecedented times. But I'm glad that our times are in his hands. There, there are no accidents in a world governed by God. There are no accidents in a world governed by God. Now, y'all put a lot of stuff on social media. Y'all might already put that on there. That's, that's something worthy of putting on the Internet. The sovereign God is presiding over this horrific scene, a scene decreed before the world's creation. All that man perpetrated on Golgotha's hill fulfilled what God's wise counsel had planned. So Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 24 through 28 says this, And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Watch. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pilate's decree, unknown to himself, fulfilled God's eternal decree and God's prophetic word. 700 years before this Roman officer gave his command, God had declared through Isaiah that his son should be numbered with the transgressors. You'll find that in Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered, that's the prophecy, was numbered with the transgressors. It is utterly astounding that the Holy One of God would be numbered with the unholy. The finger responsible for inscribing the law on tablets of stone now is counted with the lawless. Yet this was God's will. Not a single word of God will ever fall to the ground. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Why did God ordain his son's death in such a manner? A number of answers present themselves for our inquiry this morning. So let me give these to you very quickly, because this is, this is the warm-up to the sermon. This, ain't, this is not the sermon. He was crucified between two, three, two, three thieves so that we might have a vivid and concrete representation of the drama of salvation, namely the Savior's redemption the sinners repenting and believing, and the sinner reviling and rejecting. So the reason why, why Christ is crucified in this manner is so that we can have a vivid and concrete representation of this drama of salvation. Another important lesson which we learn from Christ's crucifixion between two thieves 
is the reality that one received him and the other rejected him. One received him while the other rejected him. You see, the two thieves were equally near Christ. They saw and they heard all that transpired during those fateful six hours. Both were notoriously wicked. Both were suffering acutely. Both were dying. And both urgently needed forgiveness. Yet one of them died in his sins, died as he lived. He was hardened and impenitent. While the other repented of his wickedness, believed in Christ, and called on him for mercy, and on that day went to paradise. You see, in the salvation of the dying thief, we have a clear view of victorious grace. God is the God of all grace, and salvation is entirely by grace. Ephesians 2.8, By grace you were saved. And it is grace from beginning to end. Hey, listen, church. Grace planned salvation. Grace provided salvation. And grace so works on the hardness of our heart that it overcomes the stubbornness of our will, the hostility of our minds, and it makes us willing to receive salvation. Right, let me just give that to you one more time because that's your story this morning. You, you may not remember that is your story, but that is your story. It is that grace planned your salvation, grace provided your salvation, and grace so worked on the stubbornness of your heart that it overcame the stubbornness of your will, the hostility of your mind, and it made you willing to receive salvation. We are saved with full consent against our will. That's my favorite Spurgeon line of all time. We are fully, we are saved with full consent against our own will. You see, grace begins, grace continues, and grace consummates our salvation. Now that ought to make every Baptist leave here with a get up in their step this morning. Because you got something that you didn't get on your own. You got something that was given to you not because of anything that you have done, but because of something that someone else did for you that you did not deserve. You see, in the salvation of the dying thieves, Scripture reinforces salvation by grace, not works. The thief had no moral life before his conversion, no life of active service after it, right? Therefore, his salvation can only be explained as an act of sovereign grace. His salvation reminds us not to rob God of his glory in the salvation of people. I really want to push this deep into our hearts this morning because sometimes we can, we can credit ourselves when God uses us in the salvation of another person far more than we should. Salvation is nothing but God's matchless grace at work. Let there be no misunderstanding here. God most often uses his people speaking his words as a means of conversion. That's Romans 10. Uh, Romans 10 teaches us that. He frequently blesses our prayers for those who are lost. But those works do not handcuff God. He is not limited to human instrumentality. His grace is all-powerful and able to save despite the lack of human instruments or unfavorable conditions so it was in the case of the of the of the saved thief 
You see, listen to this. His conversion occurred at a time when to outward appearance, to outward appearances, Christ had lost all of his power to save others or even himself. Do you remember? That's what he was, that's what they said to him, right? You saved others, save yourself. He witnessed Christ sinking beneath the weight of the cross. He knew public opinion overwhelmingly was against him. Crucifixion seemed inconsistent with being the Messiah, and his condition was definitely a stumbling block to all the Jews. His crucifixion even caused doubt amongst those who believed in him, right? They were scratching their heads. They were thinking, why? Peter, Lord, I'm not even going to allow you to be crucified. Not one of Golgotha's attendees cried out, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And yet the thief held on to his Savior despite all of the difficulties and the obstacles to faith. So how can we explain the, the fact that this dying thief took a suffering, bleeding, and crucified man for his God? How do you explain that? It's, it's impossible to explain it apart from divine intervention and supernatural operation. His faith in Christ was, listen, a miracle of grace. And your faith in Christ is a miracle of grace. Let me remind us all that his conversion took place before the hours of darkness, before the triumphant cry, before the rendering of the temple veil, before the quaking of the earth and the shivering of the rocks, before the centurion's confession. God purposely set his conversion before these things for the magnification of his sovereign grace. By design, God chose to save this thief under the, under the most unfavorable circumstances so that no flesh could glory in his presence. God deliberately arranged this combination of adverse conditions and surroundings to teach us that salvation is of the Lord. To teach us not to magnify human instrumentality above divine agency. To show us that every genuine conversion is the direct product of the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you ready to share your faith now? Huh? The pressure's off. Who cares how good you are or bad you are? Who cares how much you know or, or little you know? It's not about you. It is a supernatural act of grace. And trust me, you might have been under some great preaching and some friend who really knew the gospel well may have shared the gospel with you and you think in some way that it was a great preacher uh, that, that affected my salvation or some really spiritual saint that affected my salvation. When in reality, listen to me church this morning, it was a supernatural act of grace that saved your lost soul. And it's the only thing that will save more lost souls. So the pressure's off. Open your mouth. Share your faith. Speak the truth. For the Holy Spirit still does miracles of grace. Let us now consider the thief himself. This is the, this is the sermon this morning. In the thief, we see a representative Savior. Okay? Because look, now we're looking at ourselves. 
Okay? When, we, when we're reading this story and we're figuring out who am I in this story, that's who I am. I'm the thief. I'm one of them. I'm either the thief that, that, will, that will reject Christ or the thief that will receive Christ. So here we see a representative, save, uh, representative sinner. Matthew 27, 44 says, And the robbers, that's the two thieves, who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So at the very beginning of this story, we see that both of these men are reviling Christ. They are on the precipice of eternity, and yet they reviled him and mocked him. Human depravity is human depravity and the inherent evil within each of each person here today is encapsulated in their mocking. If you haven't experienced the miracle of divine grace, then you possess the same hatred for Christ in your heart that they did that day. And you may think, or you may say, I don't, I don't feel that way towards Christ. And you may not believe so. But that doesn't alter what is factual. Anybody who will not bow their knee to Christ is represented by the thief on the cross who rejected Christ and reviled Christ. Listen, you can, say love, you, you can say you love Jesus all you want. You can say Jesus is the greatest thing that, 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 that's ever been all you want. But in, un, until you bow the knee to King Jesus and fully confess your sin and fully embrace him as Savior, you're just like the thief on the cross who reviled and rejected Jesus. If you don't believe that, just let me give you some verses here. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Jeremiah's words are universal in their application as it describes what every heart is by birth. Scripture goes on to declare in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Yet another diagnosis of every descendant of Adam is found in Romans 3, 22 and 3. And I know you know this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Why is there no distinction? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Until we realize our desperate condition, we will not discover our need for a divine Savior. Until we see our total corruption and depravity, we will not run to the great physician. Until we find in this dying thief a portrayal of ourselves, we will not join heaven's choir singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Here we see that man has to come to the end of himself before he can be saved. Man has to come to the end of himself before he can be saved. Seeing ourselves as lost sinners is not enough. We must admit that our condition is entirely beyond, listen, human repair. We got to get away from this gospel that is a, a, a gospel of rehabilitation and not a gospel of redemption. Jesus did not come to rehab your image. <laughs> okay, that's not what he's about. He came to redeem the image of God in you. Uh, 
Unless we see ourselves, unless we see our desperate state, we will not look outside of ourselves to the one who can save. Man is like the prodigal son. After squandering his substance and riotous living and began to be in want, instead of turning to his father, what did he do? He went and joined himself to a, a, to a citizen of that country. And he went into the fields and he fed swine. In other words, he went to work. Likewise, the aroused sinner, instead of going at once to Christ, tries to work himself into God's favor. However, he will fare no better than the prodigal. Sinners must come to the place of weakness before salvation. And this is what the dying thief portrays to us. He was unable to walk the path of righteousness. Why? Because his feet are nailed to the cross. Nor could he perform any good works because there was a nail in each of his hands. Neither could he turn over a new leaf and live a better life because he was dying. Sinners must be cut off from their own workings and be made willing to be, to be saved by Christ. This is the requisite of salvation. You have to come to the end of yourself. I told the life group this morning, I've Started listening. I started back listening to, to Dave Ramsey, and I hear all these people that call in about their debt situation and the crisis of their financial status, and they're they're crying out for help. And then Dave just lays out this. I mean, this. Uh, all right. Well, here's the pathway. It's the pathway to financial salvation. No going out to eat. Beans and rice. No vacations. Sell everything that you have. Get another. Get a second job. We, he says you got to have a gazelle-like mentality. you got to be aggressive and get after it. And you hear some people, and they're just embrace it. And other people, you can just sense their voice on the phone. It's overwhelming, and, and they just can't embrace what he's saying. And I hear that. I think, gosh, that's salvation. That's the way spiritual salvation is. There are some people that want to be saved, but they don't want to admit fully that they're a sinner. They, they, they will not come to the end of themselves. They are not in such a desperate situation that they have nowhere to turn outside of themselves. They're, they're desperate, but they're still looking somewhat to deliver themselves for what, for, uh, by what remains in them. Listen, the only way a person ever experiences true salvation is not only do they recognize that they're a sinner, but they come to the end of themselves to where they're so desperate, they know that there exists nothing inside of them that can save themselves except what is outside of them in the person of Christ. Also from this story here, we see the meaning of repentance and faith. Repentance is changing, uh, is a change of mind about sin, a sorrowing for sin, a forsaking of sin. Repentance is the realization of our lost condition, the discovery of our ruin. It is the judging of ourselves. It is the owning of our low estate and our lost estate. Repentance is, is not so much in a, an intellectual process as it is the conscience active in the presence of God. And this we find here in the case of the thief. Notice what he says. It's going to be on the screen in Luke 23, 40. Watch this. But the other robber rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
Don't forget, this was the same man who mingled his voice with those who were earlier slandering the Savior. His response serves as evidence of the Holy Spirit's work upon him. It was not, do you, do you not fear punishment, but do you not fear God? He apprehends God as the judge. And then, in verse 41, he says, And indeed, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He owns his guilt and embraces his sentence as just. He makes no attempt for extenuation. Have you ever taken that position before God? Are you ready to acknowledge that death is your due? Christ came into the world to save sinners who are conscious that they are lost and undone. The thief's repentance towards God was accompanied by faith towards our Lord Jesus. Earlier, I called your attention to the sovereignty of God's grace exhibited in his conversion. Now we turn to the other side of the truth, which is equally necessary to press this morning, a side which is not contradictory to what we have said previously, but rather complementary. Listen to this. He believed the truth. His faith took hold of the word of God. Over the cross, what was put over the cross? Do you remember? There was a superscription or an inscription that said what? This is the king of the Jews. Pilate placed it there as a matter of derision, but nevertheless, it was true, right? And after he had written, God would not allow him to alter it. There is no doubt that the thief had read it, and divine grace opened his eyes to this understanding. By faith, he had grasped the kingship of Christ. And what did he say to Jesus? When you come into your kingdom. You see, faith always rests on the written word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here we also see the saviorhood of Christ. Jesus paid no attention to the crowd. However, the prayer of the contrite believing thief arrested his attention. I love this next part. This might be my favorite part of the sermon this morning. Though grappling with the power of darkness and bearing the heavy load of his people's guilt, he did not excuse himself from attending to individual needs. You see, a sinner can never come to Christ in an unacceptable time. The penitent thief, thief illustrates Christ's readiness and power to save sinners. Jesus is no feeble Savior. When the thief cried, Lord, remember me, the Savior was in agony on the accursed tree. He had the power to redeem the soul from death and to open for him the gates of paradise. Never doubt or question the infinite sufficiency of the Savior. If a dying thief, if a dying Savior could save, what more could a Savior risen from the tomb save? Have you ever thought about that? If a dying Savior could save, how much more can a risen Savior save? The salvation of the dying thief demonstrates that the Lord is willing and able to save all who come to him. If Christ received this penitent, believing thief, then no one need, to, need despair of a welcome if they will but come to Christ. Listen, if somebody tells you, you know what, I'm just too bad to come to Christ, you tell them, you get rid of your pride and come to Christ. Because to say that I'm too bad is a prideful statement. That's not 
some statement of personal derision. That's a statement of pride. Lay aside your pride. There's no one too, too bad, too low, too sinful, too evil to come to Christ. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And nobody can sink lower than lost. The gospel of Christ is the power of God to everyone that believes. What does that mean? There's no limit to God's grace. A Savior is provided for the very chief of sinners, if he will only believe. Even those who reach the dying hour, yet in their sins, are not beyond hope. He came into the world to save sinners, and he left it and went to paradise accompanied by a saved criminal, the first trophy of redeeming blood. Now, listen to these last two points this morning. I hope this sets your heart on fire if it's not already. Here we see the destination of the saved at death. Today, that's what he said. It's in the emphatic. Today, in in our Lord's gracious response to the thief's request, we have a striking illustration of how divine grace, listen, how divine grace exceeds human expectations. The thief prayed that the Lord would remember him in the coming of his kingdom. But Christ assures him that before that very day had passed, he should be with the Savior. The thief asked to be remembered in an earthly kingdom, but Christ assures him of a place in paradise. The thief simply asked to be remembered, but the Savior declared that he should be with him. Therefore, God does abundantly above all that we ask or think. Not only does Christ's reply signify the survival of the soul after the death of the body, but it also tells us that the believer is with him during the interval, which is the division between death and resurrection. To make this more emphatic, Christ prefaced his promise with the solemn words. What did he say? Truly, I say to you. It was this prospect of going to Christ at death which cheered the martyr Stephen in his last hour. And before he died, he cried these words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It was the blessed expectation which moved the apostle Paul to say, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Not unconsciousness in the grave, but with Christ in paradise is what awaits every believer in death. Last, here we see the longing of the Savior for fellowship. I don't think we think about this enough. So hear me closely this morning. In fellowship, we reach the climax of grace and the sum of Christian privilege. We cannot go higher than fellowship with God. God has called us, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 9, unto the fellowship. Look, God is faithful by whom you are called into what? The fellowship of his Son. We are saved for fellowship with God. God had innumerable servants before Christ came here to die. The angels ever do his bidding. Christ came not primarily to secure servants, but those who should enter into fellowship with him. 
That which makes heaven supremely attractive to the heart of the saint is not that heaven is a place where we shall be delivered from all sorrow and suffering, nor is heaven is the place where we shall meet again with those loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord, nor is heaven the place of golden streets, pearly gates, and jasper walls. Blessed are those things. Magnificent are those things. Heaven without Christ would not be heaven. It is Christ for which a believer's heart longs and pants for. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Ponder this thought. I did all this to get to this thought this morning. Listen, ponder this thought. Been thinking about this for maybe weeks. Heaven will not be heaven to Christ in the highest sense until his redeemed are gathered around him. Heaven will not be heaven to Christ in the highest sense until his redeemed are gathered around him. Heaven will not be heaven in the highest sense until his redeemed are gathered around him. His heart longs for his people. Are y'all going to heaven? His heart longs for his people. Well, y'all proven to be Baptists this morning. Y'all started out really good in worship. I thought, look, we finally broke the Baptist barrier of being stiff, rigor mortis, dead, lifeless, pathetic. And now y'all get to probably the, the, one, the one aspect of all morning that you should just rock it out with, amen, hallelujah, turn me loose, let me run around the building a couple of times, and I get nothing. Good gracious. I'm talking about the God of the universe, who in him is no sin. And you, filthy, stinking, rotten sinner, saved by grace. He looks at you and he says, I've done all of this because my heart longs to be with you. And heaven will not be heaven in its highest sense until the redeemed are gathered together with the Redeemer. He says to come again and to receive us unto himself is the joyous expectation and he will not be fully satisfied until he sees and receives the travail of his soul. Can I ask you two final questions? Are you as desirous to be with Jesus as he is to be with you? Are you as desirous to be with Jesus I'm not talking about in heaven right now. I'm just talking about in that daily quiet time, in prayer, in your car, wherever you go. Are you as desirous to be in the presence of Jesus as he is for you to be in his presence? For most of us, that answer is no, if not all of us. So here's my second and final question. What sacrifices are you willing to make so that you can live 
the life that Christ died for you to live. You see, Jesus took up his cross. That's the cross of redemption so that you could take up your cross, which is the cross of relationship. When Jesus says to us, take up your cross and follow me, that's not the cross of redemption. That's the cross of relationship. Listen, there's a life for the Christian that awaits us if we will simply be willing to live like Christians are called to live. Take up your cross today and follow me. Pick up that cross of relationship, and I promise you, you'll find a life unlike any life that you have experienced so far with Christ. Not a life of ease, not, 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 a, not a life devoid of any problems or, or difficulties, but it will be a life of peace. You'll be able to go through the storms of life in peace. Why? Because your mind is kept on Him. Why? Because you're picking up the cross daily of relationship and walking with Him. You're doing what is necessary in order to have the relationship that Christ has called us to. So here's what I want us to do. David's going to come. He's going to lead us in a song that invites us to come to the altar. And so here's what I want you to do this morning. Before you sing a note of this song, and I I encourage you to do this a couple of weeks ago, and I want to encourage us to do it again this morning, is either before you sing is to take right where you are right now. I want you to go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes. I I don't want you to be fixated on anything that's going on around you. I, I I want you right now to begin to fixate on what you've heard this morning. And and simply maybe just fixate on this final question. Are you as desirous to be with Christ as he is to be with you? And if you say, I want my desire to be greater. I want the Lord to incline my heart towards him. Then what is it going to take for you to daily pick up your cross and follow him? To daily pick up that cross of relationship and follow him.